Hello and welcome to Mind on the Matter. I'm Tuba Khan, currently a fourth year medical student at King's College London with a bachelor's degree in neuroscience from the University of Sussex. And I love dogs. Just thought I would throw that in there. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Derek Summerfield about politics and medicine. Dr. Summerfield is a consultant psychiatrist at South London and Maudsley NHS Trust, and he's also an honorary senior lecturer at King's College London. He's played many roles during his working career, including being the principal psychiatrist with the Medical Foundation for Care of Victims of Torture, and being a consultant to Oxfam on projects in war-affected settings. He's been involved in a lot of research and published extensively on the effects of torture. He has around 150 papers published, so needless to say, it's an absolute honour to be able to speak to him. So Derek, you've been involved in many different aspects of psychiatry, but let's start right from the beginning. What was it like growing up in South Africa and how did you decide to study medicine? Well, I I was born in South Africa, but I grew up in Zimbabwe, which was then the the British colony of Rhodesia. And I suppose in some ways that that experience did touch on my later career choices. Certainly in psychiatry, it gave me an early synthesization of the question of um, who owns the knowledge, whose knowledge is allowed to count. That could be true in many areas of the world, but one can still uh, see that there remains, if you like, an imperialist dynamic in relation to non-Western knowledge and Western knowledge, and with non-Western academics always having been at a disadvantage and, you know, lacking the funding and the the clout that Western academe can bring to bear on their study. So I suppose I grew up with that. I could see that uh, Africa I grew up in was was construed by the white colonial and really had very little imagination as to the African understandings of the world and why they were on earth and the disruptions to their cultural and economic practices occasioned by the arrival of the white man. So I suppose you can see some thread between that and the kind of stance I've taken up in psychiatry. I didn't go straight to medicine. Um, I went to Cape Town University, I think, and I did the maths and physics for reasons that have long since been lost. And then I worked for a year for a shipping company, marine insurance, and then I taught for a year in a school in Rhodesia, uh, having got, got into medicine here in London. So I came over and started medicine. So I only started when I was 24. But I suppose in many ways, I still retain a Zimbabwean identity. I don't tend to think of myself as British. And the way the British state has progressed through the world, uh, I'm a fierce critic and uh, actually wouldn't want to be British. I agree with you. And I think that's something a lot of us are struggling with, being torn with appreciating Britain for everything that we love about it, but also being very ashamed of what it's becoming. I'm sure we'll discuss this more later on. So what medical school did you end up training at? I was at St Mary's. There were 12 completely independent medical schools, all getting the University of London degree, but all running entirely autonomously. So there were only 85 in my year. I understand that King's, guys, King's, Thomas's, that you have years of over 400. Yes, which in comparison sounds mad, doesn't it? Are you ever in the room together? Yeah, we used to be for a lot of the lectures, but looking back now, I don't think that's going to happen again anytime soon. So how did you then decide that you wanted to specialise in psychiatry? Well, I didn't. I stayed in internal medicine. You know, I was a medical registrar, SHO registrar over here in, you know, internal hospital medicine. I worked in Zimbabwe and in Cape Town in various medical posts. But probably the most powerful Two months of my entire medical career, actually, were March and April in 1980. It was a long time before you were born. 
But those were the last days of white rule in Rhodesia, and there'd been a, a vicious civil war occasioned by uh, whites uh, trying to hang on to power. I worked for two months as a locum in a hospital in a war zone in, in the southeast. There were two doctors and um, about 200 patients. I don't know how many patients were on the beds and other patients were under the beds. That was tough work. We had some splendid nurses but and basic medicines we had. It's a sad thing to think that after 40 years of independence in Zimbabwe, healthcare in a district, small district hospital like that would be far inferior to what uh, was then applied in terms of medicines and materials. During those two months, well, there were only two of us, so we split things. I tended to do A&E and some of the medicine and the, all the pediatrics. The pediatrics, there were about 40, 50 kids in the ward, five a day died. That's how sick they were to start with, five a day. We saved a few, but you, it was obviously a, a, a quick experience in how little the lives of African children count, how little they weigh. And, of course, the war exacerbated uh, malnutrition problems. So many of the kids were Frank Washer-Core or Merasmus. Neonatal tetanus was very common. There was a tradition to rub the umbilical stump with dried cattle dung. The trouble was that, that that enhanced the risk of neonatal tetanus. So these babies, continuously fitting, would be brought in aged a couple of weeks or something. Mortality rate was high, you know, at least half, perhaps more. But those were the thing you were confronted with very stark issues then. I mean, sometimes some well-nourished boy would die of an overwhelming sepsis uh, from a leg wound or something because they were miles away and the roads were mined during the war. And what do you do? At the same time, I saw there that myself and the other doctor at our Western Hospital were in professional competition with the local witch doctor who remain a substantial for healing throughout Africa. In Zimbabwe, they call Nyanga. Nyanga. And the local Nyanga... Patients shunted between the youngers and us. I accepted that this was, you know, I didn't resent them or anything, but what was galling was that you got a kid with kosher core, you know, not enough protein to keep the tissues, you know, keep the fluids in the circulatory system. The best chance they had was getting 350 mils of blood. That was their best chance. But where did we get this from? We used to go to the local prison, government prison, where I think they volunteered. And when we, they used to, the prisons used to donate blood. So I'd come in the morning, I've got this 350 mils of precious blood in a plastic tube, plastic bottle, and the cot is empty. So I say to the nurses, where's the child? I've got the blood. And they would always say the same thing to me. They would say, the child has absconded, absconded. What they meant was that in the middle of the night, the parents had thought a lot of children are dying in the ward. My child might die, which is certainly a realistic thought. I don't know if this medicine is working. We need to switch to the witch doctor. And they'd come in the middle of the night when they knew they wouldn't see me or they'd be less likely to see me and spirit the child away. Sometimes they'd come back again. But when you had the 350 mils of blood, of course, that was a bit galling. I suppose those are decisions that we're not really faced with over here, but they're just trying to do the best thing for their child. Sometimes, and this is entirely responsible parenting, the... Parents would want to play all the angles possible. So they would, I remember one man saying to me, he had a desperately ill child, doctor, can I take the child for a witch doctor ceremony? It's a fontanelle ceremony. You know, that soft part in the skull of a newborn. Can I take the child for the fontanelle ceremony and bring it back in time for the next penicillin? There you see responsible parenting covering the angles. So anyway, I was there for a couple of months and I also worked as a mid-reg in Saudi Arabia. And then eventually, so I'd been doc, general doctor nearly five years before I specialized in psychiatry, started. So I was already 
34 before I started psychiatry. I would certainly recommend people who are interested in psychiatry to not go straight into it. I would do some other things first. I'd, be, I'd say that about any speciality one ends up in, to, to do work in others, you know, to do more general work. It must have been a shocking contrast working in these other countries where medicine is so different than coming back to the UK to work. Well, things are much starker there. One thing I realised was that out there, you definitely did save a few, but you lost a lot. You saved a few. Over here, I'm not talking about Sky, I'm talking about my years before Sky, which was a med reg or something. One really didn't very often have the feeling that you really saved that life, not so often, not nearly as often, but you didn't lose them. You didn't, they didn't die nearly as frequently. You know? I must, when I came over here in locum pediatrics, I remember thinking one day when I went to the ward, Jesus, the children here are meant to live. You know what I mean? They're expected to live. But it was also a very striking time uh, out there, which was because the war ended. And so the guerrillas, who were fighting the government, and if you way, would, couldn't come into a government facility without you know, being noticed in the army corps or something. They were hiding in the bush. They'd been fighting in the bush for years. Now, suddenly, they, there was a ceasefire, uh, and there were elections. And one of the, the election posts you know, was actually in the outpatient of the hospital, the, the voting, voting pool. And so these guerrillas would come out of the bush into the hospital and some of them looked pretty wild. and They had some strange conditions. I mean, one guy had some weird kind of cardiomyopathy. You know, God knows they've been living very rough in the bush for a long time, probably with uh, decent food. But one extraordinary thing was one morning, so there they were in the hospital, and I was treating them sort of, the same as the others, if they were sick enough. You had to be really sick to get in. And one of the guerrilla chiefs, all wearing a black bar, a beret, calling everyone comrade, drove into the hospital and in front, in the outpatient department, surrounded by a ring of locals who were very struck by the conversation between me, I think, and the guerrilla chief, because for the first time they witnessed a man standing up to a white doctor and not taking a subservient position, you know, arguing with a white doctor. And they, they were, it was, this was a sort of, I was aware that this was a kind of event. There was a crowd of people watching this. Anyway, he wanted me to admit his girlfriend. There was something wrong with it, a young woman. She was something wrong with her, like, it was just wasn't ill enough, and I wondered whether it was an organic problem or what. Anyway, she simply wasn't sick enough, so I said to him that, you know, that she wasn't sick enough. Uh, and the, bed, the, the hospital was bulging with patients who stood on landmines and all sorts of things. And he argued, no, no, I want you to admit her, and, you know, and it carried the force of the moment, which was this was the moment, the very week in which black rule was coming to life in Zimbabwe. Here was a, you know, a, a black chief talking to a, a representative, if you like, of the old regime, the government medical officer. And saying, I, I want you to admit my girlfriend. She's sick enough. Anyway, I said, no, I wouldn't, politely. But we argued like this. And after 10 minutes, the gorilla eventually said, gorilla chief said, okay, okay. And he took his girlfriend and went. I mean, you were essentially practicing medicine during a political revolution, which is amazing. A lot was going on outside medicine as well at the time in those two months. Anyway, that was 1986. I, came, I, started, I, I started training in psychiatry at St. George's Hospital Medical School. I applied to the Maudsley, actually, to do psychiatric training. They didn't accept me. <laughs> well, they put me on a reserve list and never called me up. So uh, there you go. So I went to St. George's, worked in various places. While I was a senior registrar there, I took a year sabbatical. I went out to Nicaragua to do some human rights documenting stuff amongst people who survived atrocities there, rural peasants. And also it was a first experience of the fallibilities of using Western-style psychiatric checklists on 
you know, non-Western rural peoples, not speaking English, because I found that, you know, these, many of these hardy campesinos, illiterate, they, you know, had been through some terrible times. They were living and functioning as actively and as effectively as they could in the context of the war and the continuing insecurity and problems of food and clean water. But when you gave them a questionnaire, they scored, they scored very highly on these symptom scores, very highly. So they were multi-symptomatic if by a symptom one means they said yes to a question or Yet it would have been an affront to call them uh, psychiatric cases. These people were doing their best, you know, and they were functioning well. On symptom scores, it really didn't have very, very much to do with it. And I think a lot of psychiatric research doesn't realise that. So in Nicaragua, do they have any way of assessing psychiatric state and any way of managing it? They didn't. There probably wasn't, wasn't very, virtually, there was no psychiatry. I mean, the, the, this is a very small, poor country, three million people only, one of the poorest countries in Latin America. At this time, they were under assault by a, a war brought by the Americans because Americans didn't like the Nicaraguan Revolution. They didn't want any socialism to show it could be a good example in Latin America. This is the ruthlessness of the US, eh? as we see in the Middle East. And so rural people were being attacked and massacred. Buses were blown up. There's ordinary buses on the roads. When I took a bus, the drive, I noticed the driver would always cross himself as we set off from one town to the next town. Would there be an ambush? So psychiatry really didn't figure too much there. Any more than on the whole, it, it figures in many other countries like that. So I didn't see any examples of local psychiatry. There would have been uh, nothing. I, I'm sure there were some people who freaked out, and I saw some very disturbed children in the, in the war zones. I wasn't there to tr- as treatment. I was just doing documentation from a human rights point of view. And I went back later with a clinical psychologist, and we studied war-wounded men on both sides of the war because some of the men who'd been fighting the, the, the Nicaragua, the so-called contras, the against, had taken amnesty offered by the Nicaraguan government and had come back into society. So I could study the effect of the war on two groups, two groups of ex-soldiers. It was very, very interesting. And what did you end up learning from studying these men? Well, what all the things people go through, but how basically resilient they are, and they have to be, you know? It's no good beating your chest. No one is going to come to your aid. But uh, the study was of, of war-wounded men so on both sides. So these were men, uh, some of whom had lost limbs, some of whom were paraplegic because they'd got a bullet in the head, and others had been shot in the abdomen and recovered, so they were not like obviously physically disabled. But they'd all been shot or blown up. The word for them was discapacitados, the Italian word for the, for the disabled. On both sides, on the, on the government side and on the contra, the anti-government side, and their stories, well, it certainly brought the war to life. They had plenty to say. I also interviewed some torturers, some people who had admitted torturing for the contra, not the government. Contra. They'd try and get information. And there's one guy who said he'd, he'd cut a peasant to pieces with his knife because he thought the peasant was lying to him. But I'm sure he was. I mean, he'd, he'd probably come into this isolated homestead and said, are there, are there soldiers around here? The peasant probably did know, probably said he didn't any. He might have been lying. Anyway, he was tortured to death. And I, I spoke to a few of these, and these were perfectly normal young men, intelligent. There was nothing about it would mark out a psychopath or a delinquent. And in fact, that bears out torture studies in other parts of the world, the famous one being in Greece, the colonel's coup between 66 and 74, where the Greek government got into torture in a big way of local left, left-wing people. A study afterwards of the torturers who were picked from amongst, you know, men serving in the army showed nothing special about them at all. They had no history of, of educational failure or delinquency. They tended to come from more right-wing families. 
there was no evidence that they were unable to function or that there was anything wrong with their intelligence. But they honor, you know, they they responded to a call in the name of patriotism. It happens. I mean, I've been involved for many years in a campaign to highlight and to stop the collusion with torture by Israeli doctors in the interrogation of Palestinian men. I'm involved with that now, right now. Have been for years. Probably the main thing. I think that's the most important we've done, actually, even though it has been a complete failure. A failure in what way? Well, I mean, one has to about what one can achieve. It's really hard to change the world, huh? But not only continue to be state policy in Israel, but the particular campaign about the collusion of doctors in those units that torture, yeah, who see the people have been tortured, but that continues. One creates a lot of ways when you campaign on Israel-Palestine. But I suppose I'm presenting a, uh, a view of a doctor, trying to be a doctor who's concerned about the, the social causes of distress and disease, the social, political, and economic causes, as with the patient's or individual you know, I think we have a duty to both, to address both the individual patient with his or her individually shaped presentation, but also to lend our voices to uh, the, uh, against the forces which produced the stuff in the first place. I mean, we can get on to that. Uh, Israel-Palestine, of course, is a very contentious area to, to campaign on. I think I find it quite hard to wrap my head around the doctor's duty to do no harm and then a doctor's role as a torturer. I know you've previously discussed this in one of your book reviews and you mentioned Max Weber and his argument of ethic of responsibility versus ethic of conviction. Do you think you could explain a little bit more about what this is? Yes. How do you know that? I read your book review on the torture doctors. Oh, yes, that's right. Yes. I've used it other places. Well, Weber was a, was a, a German sociologist, a very bright guy, early years of the 20th century. He talked about two kinds of ethics. And what was the first ethics of... The ethics of responsibility. Responsibility, that's right. Now, the ethics of responsibility are the kind of ethical duties that, for example, a doctor would in relation to behaving appropriately uh, with the patient, treating them well, all those other things. Or a teacher, you know, a professional, the ethics of responsibility. That's to do with playing your role responsibly. And then what does the ethics of conviction refer to? Now, the ethics of conviction I found in my 25 years of human rights work, routinely trumps the ethics of responsibility in doctors. The ethics of conviction are, if you like, a higher level set of understandings. They are the one, or, or perhaps a lower level, if you like, they're the deeper ones. Um, and they are to do with your issues of personal identity, political outlook, philosophies, yeah, group identity. That in relation to campaigning on Israel-Palestine, I find that no matter how much evidence one produces international and regional human rights organizations, MC International, and indeed Israeli organizations, anti-torture organizations. All the evidence, testimony from prisons, detail, names of God, no matter how much you produce, it makes no difference because they really have the answer to the question. The question is their ethics conviction tells them that above all, Israel is a good thing. You know, I'm a good Jewish person in relation to Israel, and that trumps everything. That trumps any, no matter how much evidence one can produce, they might individually be appalled by some of it, some of them, but it doesn't matter really because there's a higher order associated, and that's the ethics of conviction. And I find distressingly the ethics of conviction trump anything else. It was the ethics of conviction that was operating. 
And as you read in that review, you see the same thing elsewhere in the US and here for that matter. In the US, psychologists who directly participated, not just in the team with, but directly participated in torture sessions of people arrested after 9-11, the so-called enhancement project in the US. These psychologists are known. The evidence about them is cast iron. But the appropriate body, like the American Psychological Association or the American Psychiatric Association, will not use their ethics committees to address them. They are saying no. You know, they are saying this is the framework of patriotism or something like that. So, I mean, that's what I call, that is moral corruption. It's like we can do whatever we want to others as long as we're protecting our people, our land, which essentially pretends like human rights doesn't exist. I mean, you know, that was Weber's analysis of the kind of thing that in the end, issues of identity and, you know, citizenship, whether it's US or whether it's Israel or Britain, may shape how people understand things that in, in another context they might see as appalling or at least, you know, reprehensible. As I mentioned in that review, there have been, you know, about 40 or 50 different credible accounts of excesses by British army doctors during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Only one has ever been prosecuted to the General Medical Council. Only one. What about the other ones? The information is the public domain. Why doesn't the General Medical Council or the BMA or someone proactively get those? They will look at stuff that's brought to them up to a point, and I've, and I've tested them at a certain level. They're functioning as part of the state. Do you think it's just part of human nature? I mean, we've been fighting for millions of years. We protect our people, our land. We fight wars. We commit atrocities that are acceptable because one believes they're ultimately doing the right thing. Can this ever change? Things can change. I mean, the remarkable thing is, you know, in South Africa, during the apartheid years, the white rule, white rule in South Africa was always far more harsh than, say, in Zimbabwe, the next country up where I grew up. But I was born in South Africa, and, and as I said to you once last year, I think my mother's all strongly, you know, uh, for the Nationalist Party, the apartheid. But once eventually Mandela came out, and it was clear that the age of apartheid was ending, whites started to change their tune. Now, that may have been opportunistic in some ways. They started to talk as if, in a way, they would not have talked several years before, like we must give the, you know, give black government a chance and all that sort of thing. Whereas previously, years that they would have had them all hanged. You know, so I think things can change. A whole climate can change, but it's difficult. That's only South Africa. When we're talking about the, um, the deeply embedded relationships, say, between the US, UK, and Israel, and other major players, you know, getting that to change is, is some of this. Why do you think it is that in the last 20 years in this country, about 150 support groups or solidarity organizations, pressure groups, or, you know, including Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, that 150 have been covertly spied on by the British government, 150. Of them, 147 are left of centre, left wing. That shows you the orientation of the state. Yeah. Now, getting that changed, getting that changed. But I certainly, uh, my own research my own has shown up the shameful aspects of the medical profession, including the collusion by doctors here who feel an affinity to Israel. Shameful, absolutely shameful. For what it's worth, I mean, I don't know. We didn't necessarily on to this, but I don't think there's any doctor in the country who's been called an anti-Semite in public more regularly than me, including in the journals. You know that's shocking because you're not prejudiced against Jewish people. You're just calling out actions that are wrong on a human rights level. No, which I take to be evidence that I'm on the right track. I don't mind at all. I've been barred from. I've been disinvited from speaking in meetings. So that's the deal. I don't mind that at all. In fact, I'm up, I'm all for it in the sense that it shows there is a struggle, you know, and, and that you're getting through it. They don't like it. Whether we should 
could expect a higher order of moral behavior from doctors than from other members of the public is a question, yes? Doctors are subject to these, <laughs> these other forces as much as anyone else. Medicine is fundamentally a conservative profession. Conservative in what way? Speaking, in most parts of the world, uh, doctors obviously are fairly well paid and economically comfortable compared to the majority of the population. So they are with the haves, not with the have-nots, yes? The great antidote to that in this country has been the creation of the NHS in 1948, which I think is one of the world's most successful ever socialist experiments, the creation of the NHS, which has been, compared to uh, health systems elsewhere in the world, has been relatively cheap, like 8% of GDP. Now it's 9%. And has delivered, you know, a world-class service for nothing, for nothing, no pain. In the US, a third or a half of all house repossessions because of bankruptcy, family goes, they can't continue to pay for the house paying the mortgage, is caused by medical bills. Only some people are insured or their limits, you know, and yet there are, the Conservative government certainly has, uh, you know, it has been working for years now to dismantle the NHS and to create something that, like a corporation. You can see it. My years here in South London and Morton, you can see, you can feel the corporate feel, the corporate language creeping into everything. They want to destroy the NHS. This is fundamentally ideological. They don't want a socialist-type organisation. They think private enterprise should deal with this. And, of course, the NHS spends £115 billion a year. A lot of American healthcare companies have been eyeing this for a long time. So I feel very pessimistic, really, about where things are going politically in this country. I have to say, and if I was facing you know, my 40-year medical career and I, I assumed that I would be working for the NHS, you know, I'd be very worried about you know, the way it's changing into some other kind of... I think what makes it harder as well is there's not really a platform or a place where you can discuss these issues. There's a lot of complaining, but obviously nothing gets done about it. I know. I know. Too. Uh, it is extraordinary. I don't know what to look at that. Amongst doctors, there's a great deal of moaning about it, and we moan in the pub and all of that. But on the whole, people go along with things and don't feel they're in a position to confront at the level of an individual doctor in the NHS. Most of them go along with it. I mean, I had a bit of a name for speaking out, but I mean, you know, does that make a lot of difference? The corporate nature of NHS trusts is being pushed from above all the time. And that's what I can't really seem to understand. How can the people at the top be non-healthcare professionals? They're all managers or corporate business people. Well, in a way, I, I didn't do it when I was there. I mean, I retired from clinical work years ago, but I, I only thought of it afterwards. But which was the... We should try and spread the word amongst doctors that we are not going to attend a meeting which is delivered by people who have no health background at all if the agenda of the meeting, as they largely are, is about how we practice. If they say you've got a, you know, there's a new system for documenting how you practice, you know, electronic patient journeys and all that sort of thing, yeah? These things shape how you practice because they fall to tick boxes to make certain diagnoses, which I didn't want to make often. There wasn't a clear diagnosis. You're forced to do that. So they are telling you how to practice as a doctor. And uh, my own feeling is no, no one, let no one tell me how to practice as a doctor, not himself in a position to appraise that. Until such time as I make a huge cock up, and then, okay, it's fine, I have to carry the can for that. Until that, you know, no non-doctor must tell me anything. Uh, you see, this is the problem. So you're going to face this when you're doctors now. How do you gain some clinical autonomy as a doctor? We're all employees of the corporation. The consultants are more senior employees than the others, but basically they have a right to manage all of us. They recognize our skills, but they are managing us. 
you know, they are us. And in the end, you know, we must fit in with, with we must fit into line, the lines of the corporation which they have drawn. You know, this is has driven a number of doctors to kind of despair. So they're telling us how to practice. I think this is a very, very bad idea. When you know the direction of travel is towards something like US medicine, which is an example of how medical practice should not medical practice in the US consumes 16% of GDP, of their GDP. 16. We are eight or nine. And yet their uh, mortality and morbidity figures are worse than here. You see the, the problems of over-investigation. Every item is paid for separately. Over-treatment. And yet a whole lot of people are under-treated because they can't afford the insurance. You know, in uh, maternity units in the U.S., you come in, say, you're giving birth and your husband is, you know, is coming after the birth. Or do. In order for the husband to hold the baby, that's billed for $60 or $50. That's absolutely ridiculous. You know, and I think Brexit is interesting. Brexit is, I think what Brexit's really about is reorienting this country to be a much more kind of English nationalistic pro-US, as if it wasn't already pro-US, but pulling us away from the regulatory systems that give some balance between big business and small man in the street. Some balance in Europe, a bit more than in the US, where really the US political order has long since been taken over by big business, including the healthcare sector. And politicians serve big business and make life easy for big business. That's their primary task. I think it's largely true here too, but it's not been as bad. But that's the direct tra- direction of travel in this country. It's absolutely a And I think an effect we're seeing from this is that the younger generation are really putting their foot down and are not willing to stand by and watch the government make decisions for our country that a lot of us don't want. Well, good luck to you all. I mean, I hope. I mean, my politics have left and always have been. And uh, it must have influenced my identity as a doctor and the kind of choices I've made, things I say to patients, my attempts to find non-medical relief for them using my signature, you know, trying to get them some money. It's a lot of medical care and money, you know. 16 years here at SLAM uh, as a consultant in an HIV mental health service, half of all the patients I saw were African women and the other half were gay men, the two at-risk groups. But, I, you know, working at the Maudsley um, and in, you know, and the trust and the hospitals around there in that service was very rich. I mean, it was in many ways a highlight of my career clinics. But I certainly think that uh, medical practice is richer if you retain the strongest possible sense of the social and political and economic factors which shape are shaping distress or despair in society at any one time. I mean, one could see over the last few years of my practice here how the withering away of the welfare state or the thinning away of the welfare state was being reflected directly and indirectly in the present. Uh, a much harsher environment, are you in or are you out? Much less truck with asylum seekers and people with, with unsettled immigration status. It's much easier to drop out of the welfare system and even if they've made a mistake, you don't get your benefits back for two months. What are you doing in the meantime? You know, it's just awful, awful. This country's become much harsher compared, say, to the 70s when I was doing medicine here. Much harsher, much more starkly divided between the haves and the have-nots. The power of business to do what it wants and to evade regulation much, much stronger. All of these things shape the kind of society in which it is able to practice a certain kind of medicine or another kind of But these are tasks for you. And on top of that, the situation of COVID has highlighted the disparity of health within the UK that correlates with socioeconomic factors. And we're still not addressing these issues, which is at the heart of practising medicine. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that most of the good I did was when I got them a bit of money or I got them housing. You know, I wrote an appeal that assist their social situation. Now, that's treatment. Using the medical signature to bolster their insecure social world. 
and provide more resources within it. That's treatment. So that's addressing the wider picture. You know, we just have to take an interest in that. And because I've spent a lot of my career dealing with refugees and asylum seekers, often through interpreters, I think I've been alert to that. But I, then maybe I was pre, pre-programmed to get into that kind of work, you know. What type of work did you do when you were working with refugees and asylum seekers? Well, I, I left the NHS and I worked for nine years in the 90s as the chief psychiatrist for a charity called the Medical Foundation for Victims of Torture in North London, which did clinical work. But mostly, I didn't make lots of diagnoses and called everyone post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, I tried not to do that. Distress and suffering, per se, is not a psychiatric condition. It's something else. It, it detests two wounds in the social world of that person. And what can we do to help with that? We are a high-status profession. Our signatures may be worth something. So do you think a more wider perspective is needed, maybe to focus on the social elements, especially people who are coming from other countries, instead of, for example, giving them a diagnosis, but actually looking at what are the social factors that are contributing to their health? Well, of course. I mean, I think, I mean, doctors do to some extent. Now, of course, general practice, one in three medical students become GPs. Uh, general practice, of course, cannot avoid this stuff all the time because people come to GPs with unsorted distress, don't they? By the time you get to a specialist clinic, if you like, the bad backs have been separated away from the stress headaches. But GPs have to see it all and have to sort out what is presenting as unsorted. Now, that's why I think um, being a good GP is probably the toughest job in medicine, I think. You know, I have mixed feelings about that statistic because obviously it's true, but we hear it so many times at medical school and I think it makes people go down the path of being a GP for the wrong reasons. For example, they think the hours are more flexible or they don't like hospital medicine, but a lot more comes with the job. I mean, my mum's a GP and I've seen a lot of the stresses that she has to deal with. And I think to be a good GP, you have to be invested in the social environment of your patients. I think they try to... I mean, in some GP surgeries there, I've seen signs saying no housing letter. You know, there's a tremendous housing problem for poorer people in Britain. And not just for poorer people. I mean, you know, students, uh, you know, students can't afford to stay in London. You know, it affects their choice of university. But they can't obviously just write housing letters to order. You know, I think doctors try. I think some try a lot harder than others to look to take on the patient's wider world. So that brings me on to my next topic. Do you think that we're starting to over-medicalise mental health? Over-medicalising mental health? Yes, I do. I mean, in a way, psychiatry from the outset has wanted to see itself and to be seen as a branch of medicine and has assumed that the same language, the same, the language of diagnosis, the language uh, of research and the same approach to research might apply in uh, psychiatry and other branches of medicine. The other branches of medicine have organs and structures. They've got a, a liver to get hold of or a kidney or but most of psychiatry is played out in the idiom of mind, not brain. Yeah? And mind is not an organ. It's an emergent miracle, if you like this. It's emerged out of, out of the brain, which is this consciousness and self-reflexiveness, which we take to be essentially human. Subjecting that to the same sort of approach to research and classification as you would for you know, other parts of the body is inevitably going to be fraught. And it begs philosophical questions about what exactly do we mean by mental disorder? You know, when all we've got to go on is what the patient says, and because psychiatrists in America or here have generated classification systems, you have four of those symptoms, you've got a disorder. But what is a mental disorder? If a mental disorder means a sick mind, it's not quite clear philosophically what it is we're talking about. 
So that's a problem. So uh, in a way, psychiatry is a, is a more discursive specialty in some ways, though a subset of people, of course, are highly disturbed. There's no getting away. I'm, I'm not playing that down. And some of them may be uh, at, at very much at risk of harm or self-harm, and those are the ones to be admitted. I don't know if I would do psychiatry the next time around. You know, I'd done medicine for four or five years. I like the sort of discursive uh, approach to psychiatry, but I think also I was attracted because it, I could see that going through psychiatry also led on into forensics, uh, all sorts of other things, which if I had become an ophthalmologist, confined to the orbit of the eye. I persuaded Oxfam, for example, not to uh, sponsor counselling programmes, etc. in war, that I didn't ask for what the people who became a fashion, but it wasn't being asked for by the refugees. You know, what they were looking for was obviously security and food and maybe some justice. And I was involved in refugee studies in Oxford. So um, I seem to have had a lot to do with refugees in my life now, come to think of it, without literally setting out like that. But obviously, they bring rich, our patients bring rich worlds with them, you know, and um, we should open our minds as much as possible. Sometimes it will raise the IQ of the interview, and sometimes it'll just make your medical practice seem rich, you know. And on that note, we've just heard the news about the government who want to bring in even stricter legislation that is inhumane against refugees and asylum seekers. That's the way this country is going. Yeah, we've got a hard right-wing government now, which has investigated using wave machines to deter small boats in the channel, which already turn over and drown, using wave machines. They've investigated using, think about, this is what Britain has become. I don't want to put you off, but I'm ashamed big time. Yes, they're signaling a yet more harsh policy on asylum seekers. You know, we're going to have to pay for this COVID thing. The Tories were realising that the austerity brought in from 2010 or so by the Tory government pay for the great collapse of 2008, and which is, of course, borne heavily, borne down heavily on the poorer people. Middle class people wouldn't notice the budget cuts in local authorities uh, until the dustbins stopped being collected. You know? So none of the things affect better off people. Um, but this country's become harsher and harsher. And now it would appear to be our direction of travel. You know, we bribe countries to keep asylum seekers back. You know, we, Germany took a million Syrian refugees. A million. Yeah, we must have taken about two and a half. Labour parties now is pretty right-wing also. I mean, we don't have any left-wing. We've got the Greens, you know, the Lib Dems I respect in some ways, but we don't have any. There's no left-wing politics anywhere near the mainstream. Maybe there's very little all over Europe, whereas right-wing politics uh, has cut closer to the mainstream in various ways. You can see here the effect of the, the whole Brexit thing did. The Chancellor of Austria, or the Deputy Chancellor of Austria, came out of a far-right party, neo-Nazi. Can you believe this? What was also seeing is that the limitations of these high capitalist models, you know, they're really not working very well. You know, it's clearly uh, more and more people are being left behind and a small coterie of people have become fantastically wealthy. You know, it's the, the wage gradient, the slope of the curve between um, and lower ones has got steeper and steeper. This will make for the cultural landscape that you have to practice medicine in. What are your opinions on Ivan Illich's medical nemesis? Now, for a bit of background, this is a book published in around 1974, I believe, in which Ivan argues that modern medicine, even though it's reduced human suffering overall, it's meant that we've in turn become reliant on it because we're less capable of coping with the hardships that come with life. Yeah. I mean, have you read the book? Caught red-handed. I haven't read the book yet. I've just read book reviews. I think everyone should read the book before they qualify in medicine. There's another book that they should 
or you should all read before you qualify, and I'll tell you that in a minute. Ivan Elich, I heard him speak to them actually in person. He Mary's Hospital, uh, somebody, and they got him to come to St. Mary's Hospital in when the book was launched about 76. The book is so now, as you can see, it's more than 30 years, 40 years old. It is undated, and it, it talks about the downside of medicine as a worldwide industry. His background was Marxist, essentially, and he pointed to what he called cultural iatrogenesis, which is that not just in medicine, but also, for example, in teaching, if in all of these realms of society, all the wisdom is supposedly given over to the official doctors, the official teachers, our capacity to learn in other ways, our capacity to look after ourselves will wither. In other words, he saw it as iatrogenic. The more society thinks that people are at any moment going to break down and need more treatment, need treatment, or you know, break down mentally or something, the more they do that, the less we retain cult with you know, the collective body, a sense of, of how we endure things, you know, the bulldog Britain, supposedly. We become weaker. Uh, and we are merely to offer ourselves up as clients or patients for the official versions of medicine, the official versions of teaching, you know, education. In other words, that's what teaching is, what medicine and health are, these coterie of paid people, and we merely submit ourselves as clients. He talked a lot about that. The book is a, a tour of force. I'd really recommend reading that book. I'm amazed you brought it up, uh, actually. The other book that no medical student should qualify without reading Write this down to you, is a book called The Fortunate Man, Fortunate Man by John Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R. Now, that is back in print with a new foreword. That is, read that book. This is about a GP in a poor part of West England, the Forest of Dean, and he's exploring the social value of the docs. This is a magnificent, magnificent. I've read it about four times. Do read it. Right, I've written it down and I'll order it as soon as we're done. <laughs> Thank you so much, Derek, for taking the time to speak to me. It's really been a privilege. Thank you. I'm honoured to be asked. Wow. We certainly covered a lot this episode and I've learned so much. And I've definitely got a lot of food for thought on certain topics that I didn't really think much into before. Don't forget to subscribe and follow the Instagram page for any comments you'd like to share. Stay safe and see you next time. <laughs>